Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Isaiah Bollinger of Trellis Commerce. He's one of the co-founders of Trellis and Trellis is an e-commerce agency that is especially focused on B2B e-commerce. He's a legend. He's been in the space for a very long time. We've been friends for a long time. Really love a lot of the work that they're doing in the space and especially how they are evangelizing the power and reach and inevitability of B2B e-commerce sweeping the landscape. We had a fantastic conversation. We went down memory lane. We talked about lots of different topics, but primarily I think our really top point that we really covered is how B2B brands can help to ensure a successful B2B e-commerce project. Enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the pod. It is my immense pleasure to welcome Isaiah Bollinger to the pod from Trellis. Welcome, Isaiah. Yeah, thank you, Jason. I think we we have an episode of yours on our podcast, The Hard Truth About B2B Commerce. So I figured we, we need to have one on yours as well. So, No, I'm super excited to have you here. Look, I've, I, I haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting you in person yet, but I've known you online. We've been friends online for a very long time. And uh, yeah, I was definitely looking forward to having this chat, obviously co-founder and, and co-owner of Trellis. And you're doing some pretty good stuff in the space. You put out a lot of good content, particularly about B2B e-commerce, which is near and dear to my heart as well. So it's finally, it's, it's great to be able to have a chat with you today. Yeah. And I think hopefully I'll, I'll come out there and meet you at some point because I'm due for a Mexico trip. So any excuse I have to go meet people in Mexico, I'm going to try and do it. We were talking off air about the fact that we're currently in Tulum and you said, hey, look, I got married in, in, in Tulum. And you were like, man, I need to come and visit you there. And I was like, oh man, we're only here for another 10 days. But then in, in January, we're going to move to the Puebla more long-term. And you said, yeah, look, we haven't been to Mexico City yet. Mexico City's close to, to Puebla. So you might come down to Mexico City and pay us a visit. Yeah, my friends were just in Mexico City and they said it was awesome. So they were there for the F1. The oh, Puebla. yes. Yeah. Yeah, Dia de los Muertos and, and everything. We've just had that in, in early November and they celebrate Dia de los Muertos, and of course, because there's so many expats here, Halloween gets gets lumped in with that as well. And my birthday's Halloween, so it was pretty cool to see all the all the Dia de los Muertos uh, celebrations. And yeah, Mexico's a really cool place. I mean, we've been traveling extensively here since March. What was your? You said your wedding was pretty spectacular, right? Yeah, I'm just a fan of Mexico. I also think that it's a pretty awesome, like kind of. People still think of it as like a third world economy, but it's moving. I think almost into that like second world maybe first world economy over time. And so it's cool to see that in real time. I think the first time I was there was actually for a wedding a long time ago, and then just kept going to various places, Tulum, and my wife really loves Tulum. And yeah, it was pretty awesome. Although we definitely got hit by the 2022 inflation, but other than that, everything else was awesome there. So the beaches are just obviously on Tulum, it's king. Feels like another world kind of. <laughs> it, it does indeed, no question about that. And I look, I've been coming to Mexico since I was very young because I grew up in Southern California, grew up close to the border in Southern California. And so I've been coming here since I was younger. But man, I tell you, the federal funds rate here in Mexico is currently 11.25% to try to get on top of inflation. It's uh, Mexico has suffered from some of the highest inflation in the world over the last few years. And certainly 
when I first started coming to Mexico, Mexico was a cheap place to come and have fun and have a party. And it was just, a, it was a great place to come and it's still a beautiful place to come, but man, have prices gone through the absolute roof here. And in fact, when we compare the prices of things in Mexico versus New Zealand, where I, I most recently moved from, the, the prices here, housing is much cheaper. Utilities are much cheaper here. Services like domestic services are significantly cheaper here, but almost everything else is about the same price as New Zealand. So yeah. groceries to food, to electronics, to everything else. And in fact, vehicles, everything else is similar or more expensive than New Zealand. So people still think, I think in many respects that when they come to Mexico, everything's going to be dirt cheap and their money's going to be worth a lot. But it's not cheap. It's not cheap. It's a lot of money until they're <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Any tourist trap here, you're going to, you're going to get, whether it's all the way down that Quintana Roo coast from Cancun, Playa and Tulum, they're, they're all tourist traps. So they're all super expensive oh, and it's hotel. just yeah, the boutique hotels, some are like seven, $800 a night it could be literally a thousand dollars a night for some of them, depending on what it, like the day. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. People are definitely shocked now. If they, if they are used to coming to Mexico, say from 10 years ago, and then they come now, they're going to see a massive change. But look, yeah. it's, it, it is a massive tourist destination. Mexico stayed open right throughout COVID. Their economy boomed. They move up, moved up one whole level in the uh, GDP, global GDP stakes during COVID. They're, they're, Mexico has benefited from reshoring and nearshoring from China yeah. because of COVID. And Let's, uh, talk a little bit about that rel relative to, I think it's a great opportunity. We're trying to invest more in hiring in South America from a B2B, from a technology standpoint, maybe manufacturing. I think there's a lot of opportunity. South America in general, I'm very bullish on because of the nearshoring. Communication is much easier. Time zone is not an issue. Generally, the English speaking is pretty strong. Spanish to English is it's a lot easier than certain other languages. So you often find that, that there's maybe an accent, but pretty, there's just, it's, in many ways, it's a lot easier. I think the only challenge is if it does get so much more expensive, the cost savings might start going to down because eventually you could run a cost savings. And I think we've seen some of that in Europe. Remember everyone's, oh, Europe's so much cheaper, Poland, Ukraine, but some of those prices started to get higher with developers and it, it stopped being much cheaper than it used to be. Still, I think cheaper than some US girls, but you're starting to see some of this stuff even out with costs in certain regions because everyone does it and then it hits a point where it's like no longer cheaper. Yeah, I think anytime you're looking at either offshoring or outsourcing, either way, the reality is that if you're looking primarily for cost savings, that's probably the wrong motivator. And when we look at the growth of e-commerce in Mexico, it's coming off of a very low base. There's less than, an, there's, it's right around a 9% penetration of e-commerce as a percentage of total retail, which is funny because pre-COVID, that's exactly where New Zealand was. So I know what this looks like. I've been through this story and I've seen this story play out before. And the challenge is that when you have e-commerce exploding in an economy like it is in New Zealand from off that very low base, in Mexico off that very low base, all of the people working in the space come at a premium in country and therefore they have an opportunity to make really good money at like an outsized rate of pay increase versus the general economy as that in some of these roles, they're making more than like a doctor or especially because in some countries, doctors don't actually make as much as they should. Right. And it's, uh, we did like the math in some of these roles and we're like, we're paying them more than the most prestigious jobs in some of these countries. <laughs> in Mexico, where, you're, where doctors are making 30 to 50 K, say 50 K at the upper end USD a year, that that is at such a rate that, yeah, absolutely. A, a job in tech, a job in e-commerce can oftentimes be paying 
that much or more. And especially if they're working internationally, the demand for resources is such that just to finish off what I was saying is that if you're looking at outsourcing, outsourcing or offshoring based primarily on cost savings, that's probably the wrong motivation. But what you will get is you will get a deeper and broader pool of resources to pull from usually. And I know that, for example, in the case of New Zealand, et cetera, when Australian and New Zealand companies are looking at offshoring or outsourcing, it's primarily because they just can't get enough talent in country, no matter what they, no matter what they're willing to pay, they just cannot get enough bodies to do the work. And so that's where these other regions, the, the Eastern Europe, Eastern European countries, the Latin countries, it's just that they, and, and even Southeast Asia, for example, in, in Vietnam, et cetera, are very, in Philippines, they're just very popular places to, to, to offshore because those countries have such deep pools of resources that we oftentimes don't have in our home countries. Yeah, no, it's true. We hire almost globally at this point because the best person for the job and the value of what we're looking say within the budget we're looking for might be in just a random country and not in the US, right? And they might be significantly better than someone we would find for that price in the US. Because everyone has budgets, people, it's not like we, we can't pay like the Facebook AI engineer budgets of half a million, million dollars. Some of these engineers get paid ridiculous prices in the US. A hundred percent. And and because of that, they dominate those employers, they dominate the ability to secure talent. And when they yeah. can secure and when they can hire talent purely to keep them on the bench, which Google famously has done, they've hired thousands and thousands of PhDs. They don't necessarily have an immediate project to put them on. But they want to take them off the market, right? They can give them that's the other thing is these companies can give you incredible stock options. Hey, we're going to give you 200K base and 300K a year of stock options. It's like, how can a small business compete with that? And that's why I think, B2, let's get into the B2B e-commerce, but that's why I think B2B companies struggle so much is they're like traditional manufacturers, distributors. Then they're like, hey, we'll pay you like 80K for a tech job. And if you're not even coming close or whatever, I'm just making that number up. But they're, yep. I think, way out of the ranges of high-end tech job salaries because you're competing against Google and then even agencies who maybe not as good as like the high-end tech companies, but they're like a level below. And so they're just not getting usually the talent that they need. And and so let's just wind it back a little bit before it, because there's so much we can talk about, I think, and unpicking that in particular and why somebody might go to work for an agency like yours or, you know, why somebody might go freelance or contract or consultancy like me. There's lots of reasons why somebody would do that versus going and working with a Google. But by way of introduction, Let's just make sure that everybody knows who you are. I'm sure anybody working in digital e-com probably knows your name by now, but you are the co-founder and CEO of Trellis, which is an e-commerce agency. And maybe if we just get the 30-second elevator pitch of how yeah. you even got to be in e-commerce in the first place. Yeah, why well, don't I give you like a, a little bit longer background because I think it might be interesting for people. And so I, I like to say no one like probably was like, oh, I'm going to be a B2B e-commerce expert. I don't think anyone came out of college or high school thinking that. Maybe in 20 years, that'll be like a career that people like aspire to. Yeah. And we're like the early people of that. But yeah, I just always knew I wanted to do my own thing, was pretty aggressive about trying to figure that out. Jumped in head first after my, my first corporate job, as I saw an opportunity to venture out on my own, had very little cost, was used to living like the college lifestyle. So I was willing to live very cheap, but I didn't need to make a lot of money to just sustain the business. And I started just getting clients and trying to help small business and then that kind of evolved into e-commerce, fell in love with e-commerce, honestly, accidentally almost. I have like e-commerce or sorry, economics and psychology background educationally. And there's like 
psychology of marketing, but then the economics, the unit economics of e-commerce is very interesting to me. Everything from, think from the B2B manufacturing supply chain side to like, you know, um, obviously all the marketing, which is all really microeconomics to some degree. Obviously macro is a whole different story. And then, yeah, just built up, went through a lot of growing pains. And that's a long story that you could spend a whole podcast on, but about 75 people, pretty full service, constantly evolving our services and really trying to help small, medium and, and enterprise with pretty well, a package offering that works well for kind of small business. It's called one to 20 million range businesses. Obviously there's always gray area then mid market, 20 million to billion. And then we do get the occasional billion plus. It's not super common, but we do work with the, the occasional enterprise enterprise. So, um, yeah, we're able to deal with the whole spectrum and early on just saw the opportunity in B2B commerce and just had to, that's why I started, that's why my podcast is the hard truth about B2B commerce. We learned the hard way too, because we start doing the projects and be like, oh, why aren't they getting results? It's like the stack looks good. It's just so much more complicated. I think one of the first B2B commerce sites, we couldn't figure out why they weren't getting results. It wasn't because the site didn't look good. So much more complicated than that, right? Because we were coming from a B2C mindset. It just, it's not that simple. This is, and, this is 10, 12 years ago. And you didn't, and as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't necessarily start out with a deep specialization in B2B. You were doing B2C and some B2B, no, no, but. We still do B2C. People always are like, B2B. to be honest, I think more and more it's a, a mix of both, right? And you need that flexibility. And I think that, most of our customers that are doing B2B want some level of B2C and some level, like we're seeing that kind of merging of B2B and B2C. So I, I don't think that it needs to be segmented as like these completely different things. Although B2B is definitely more complex overall, and it does need to be treated a little bit differently. We're seeing a lot of B2B companies that want a B2C brand. Maybe it's a separate brand. Maybe it's a separate experience for like certain buyers that almost just want a simple experience. And then they have like their wholesale experience. So we're seeing a ton of that. It's almost less and less that we're seeing people just want one. We're seeing more and more that they want multiple types of experiences. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, but. Yeah, it it definitely aligns with what I'm seeing. I'm seeing sort of three buckets of clients come through my virtual doors. And that is the B2B brands that have never done e-com before and, or they need to significantly upgrade their experience because what they have today was maybe built a decade ago and it was on, it was an on-prem software sitting in a server in some closet in their office somewhere and they don't really touch it. They don't really use it. They don't really promote it to their customers, but it's technically available. And then I'm seeing B2B brands that maybe have a, a very successful B2B e-commerce offering wanting to establish a D2C e-commerce offering as well alongside their B2B channel because of all the benefits of having that direct contact with the consumers of their products. But then I'm also seeing probably a faster growing segment of customers, which are the D2C brands that want to establish a, a B2B, a complementary B2B channel. Cause maybe they're doing, maybe they're doing, maybe they've tiptoed into B2B by offering uh, through their existing D2C experience. Maybe they offer price breaks for significant volumes. So they have tiered pricing on their D2C site. Maybe they'll offer, maybe they'll offer credit uh, in a light touch away on their existing B2C website, but they want to offer a true end-to-end -end B2B commerce offering. And within the D2C paradigm, that doesn't really work. If you're wanting to on the same site, for example, on the same storefront, because the, the goals of D2C brands and their customers and the goal of B2B brands and their customers are totally different. In the D2C world, we're trying to 
I want to get your take on this. In the DTC world, we're trying to get customers to stay on the site as long as possible from the very first visit. In the B2B world, we're actually trying to get them to spend as little time on the site yeah, as possible and get into the vibe. I think that, yeah, I think a better way to, to think about it is to take a complete step back and say, what are the channels I need to be on? So I've always, I wish I was more kind of controversial about this. I was always skeptical of the pure D2C movement. I'm an omni-channel. I'm a big believer in multi-channel, omni-channel. I love what Feednomics conferences buying Feednomics. That was a great move by them. I don't think any brand with maybe some rare exceptions should be like, oh, we only do B2B or we only do B2C. Look at all the best brands, Apple. You can buy on Apple's website. You could buy on, we have a B2B portal on Apple, business account. They have, you can obviously buy in the re, their retail stores. They also have the partnerships with Verizon and every, there's so many ways to buy an Apple computer, but they're very intentional about how they do that. And you actually can buy Amazon. They, they, they sell on Amazon, but it's older model. So they only sell the older models on Amazon, like commodity. And so I would take a step back and say, where, like in an ideal world, where should I be selling, right? Maybe it's my commodity products on Amazon, right? And eBay or whatever. And my premium products are on my website or everything's on my website, but especially premium. I need my dealer website also because they need to have that quicker experience because I don't want my sales reps wasting all their time taking orders. So like. You, I think the first step is mapping out where should you be selling on all these channels and building a and building like a vision of the future. And then what is the experience does that need to fit that? And then no one's gonna be able to do that all at once. So I want to be clear, trying to do that all at once is very unrealistic. You're not going to, especially for a small mid-sized brand, you're going to, but it is good to have idea of this so that you can start to think about, oh, I'm building this infrastructure to get there. And I think with that mindset, you're able to start to think about, okay, the dealer experience maybe needs to be a little bit more like this because this is how they buy. It could still be the same website, right? And it could be company login, special login. The, those nuances I think can be figured out. But I think a lot of companies just, they haven't even thought through all their channels and how to prioritize their channel mix. And they're just playing backwards. They're just like plugging holes in band-aiding things to try and make them slightly better in a random way instead of thinking about like how does my architecture solve for all of this and i've seen some smart companies start to think like that and they're actually re-architecting everything from the ground up to fit all these channels that's it from phase one two three four five approach and i think what you refer to is from my perspective is really this concept of vision roadmap and as much of a channel agnostic, at least from a tech stack perspective, a channel agnostic approach, so that you're not basically backed into a corner with a truckload of legacy debt, technical debt, that then it, it completely eliminates any future options you might have. So even if you don't think today, I'm gonna sell on Amazon, or even if you don't think today, I need a B2B website, or if you don't think today, I need a DTC website, or you don't think today, hey, I, I don't have physical stores today. I don't necessarily ever, I'm not necessarily ever going to need physical stores, but then you might in the future. And yeah, I think if you- Let's see brands. Peloton's got a store. Allbirds has got a store. Nike's got stores. As you said, Apple's got stores. Everybody's got stores. Yeah, you need Amazon bought Whole Foods, right? Yes. That's been the first indicator that like, holy shit, we need a store. And I think a store is an experience, right? It's not exactly just a store, right? It can be a fulfillment center. It can be experience. You buy them on. I think it's about bucketing out the different types of sale that you probably need to do. And it's not that crazy. The way I, I think about it is you have marketplaces, right? 
and I would bucket everything. Marketplaces would be Amazon, eBay, Walmart. I didn't work out a Libre, whatever. Yeah, but probably very TikTok shop. But marketplaces as a function, there's a process you'll need to go through, which is like some sort of feed, product feed that'll generally need to feed at some sort of inventory logistics mechanism to, to fill, fill those products. So they may have that, they may not. Generally, there's technologies that will support that function, right? So you have marketplaces. So that's, I think ignoring marketplaces is extremely stupid. Probably almost every business should be thinking about marketplaces to some degree because the vast majority of online shopping is on marketplaces. And so I think Amazon alone as well, like 50% of the US buying- E-commerce market. You got in Walmart, eBay, you're probably at seven in Target Plus and TikTok shop. You add them all up, you're probably at 70% of e-com, right? So ignoring marketplaces is ignoring, it'd be like, oh, I'm not going to advertise on Google or Facebook. It would be that level of stupidity in my mind. So marketplaces to me is like a must have. And so that's one channel you have to figure out. Then I think B2B and retail is just an obvious channel for every business, including D2C. And you're already seeing that. And so you need a mechanism to sell to businesses, which is what me and you do very well from a strategic consulting and execution perspective. And that would be building like a B2B e-commerce portal experience, whatever you want to call it. Yes, people can call you up. They can fax you orders, but that's probably not where you want to be three to five years or even now, right? So you have what's called the B2B buying experience. And some of that may be to facilitate marketplaces. So there's some bleeding there of a marketplace buyer and the B2B. Because there's B2B marketplaces as well. So the reality is you want to be able to be on those B2B marketplaces in addition to a D2C marketplace. Yeah. And then you have just straight up D2C. D2C could just be, all right, you want to buy a list price, whatever. It could be a B2B buyer buying at list price. It doesn't get a special price because they're a first time buyer and they're just, the volume's not there or it could just be different. Everyone knows what D2C is. That's the easy part that... Shopify, honestly, is monetized some of that, right? Like, it's not too hard to set that up, depending on this. Obviously, at scale, a billion dollars of D2C. Then it's a different story altogether. And, and the experience, the, the custom experience you want to build on top of a Shopify, for example, gets you see some pretty extreme examples of that. So if you really break it down, you have D2C, your dealer website, there's some blending there. Maybe it's the same infrastructure. Maybe they're, Maybe it's one website, maybe it's two or subdomain, oh, we've talked about this with like e-commerce is a great solution with that, with the multi-store functionality. You could have like B2B or you could merge it. Then you have marketplaces. And then really, other than that, your own physical stores that you may or may not have, and not that, which may include buy online, pick up in store, or just going to the store and not much else. Other than that, you're talking about non-digital channels of call in, calling in, faxing, email, analog, ordering field so, sales where they're taking the order manually those kinds of things it could be interesting because i think field sales can be digitized tied back to this b2b commerce experience so i wouldn't discount field sales and maybe if you can have it like ipad experience very much tied to the e-com website there's some i think and then mobile apps you're starting to get into some pretty sophisticated stuff at that point i think that's like a phase five for most businesses like Caterpillar, I think it was that like B2B. I'm like, yeah, they're doing the mobile app. So they're Caterpillar. They have billions of dollars. I'm just thinking for the average, let's say $50 million B2B company or even $20 million B2B company or even $5 million B2C company into B2B. It's not that crazy to start to map out. Okay, I have marketplaces, I have D2C, I have my wholesale channel or dealer channel. These things all kind of blend together. Maybe I have one store, maybe I have 10 stores. 
how do I, and I think you got to start bottom up, right? Like we talk about this. I talked to a company the other day and they, they're still doing everything on QuickBooks desktop and they have no ERP and they're manufacturer. They manufacture and distribute. And, and so it's crazy, right? It's crazy. And he's all like, they're worried, they're trying to like do some more marketing, but then they, it's like building advertising on a house with a foundation is just like crumbling. And I think some ways you got to start back office, operationally ERP, is that logistics. Foundation? Is that foundation going to support all these channels? If you got an order from a marketplace, if you got an order from a wholesaler or whatever, sorry, a re let's say, I don't know, Home Depot buys a thousand units. You sell on Amazon marketplace and you got your DC orders. Can you, can your operations fulfill that? That's the first place I would start, right? And then the front end is really an extension of that, right? Shopify, the big commerce, the Magento, whatever it is. It's, the problem is people are trying to build that on top of a broken foundation. Yep. Or and no so foundation. They don't have no one. Foundation and no process. They have, what's your process for a marketplace order? What's your process for a wholesale order? What's your, walk me through that. Is it documented? No. Who does it? I don't know. Jerry in the warehouse. Yeah. He, Jerry in the warehouse deals with our Amazon orders when we get them. Yeah. Does it, are you always on time? I don't know. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> And these are the scary kinds of answers that we do sometimes get when we get in discovery. And I'm sure you're the same. Sometimes when we get in discovery is for me, so much more about the company looking inward versus just communicating outward to people like yeah. us. And if I'm asking the right the questions, the outward part is easy. Once you get the inward part fixed, even knowing what the inward part is, because I still find that a lot of these bigger B2B businesses not so much in D2C and B2C brands purely because they tend to be much more digitally mature. Now they've been doing this thing, they've been doing this e-com and digital thing for maybe a decade. Whereas in B2B, these businesses from a digital perspective are typically, they, they're, they're much more nascent in their understanding of digital channels, digital technology, what, what road mapping looks like, what process mapping looks like. They, they just haven't done it. And, and everything is, I, I love this word, everything is our processes have grown organically, internally, which simply, uh, which simply means we didn't have a plan going in. It's just, we have fallen into the processes that we do it because we hired. Time to think out strategically our processes. We just made up processes. When they say organic. As we went along to ad address the need we had in the moment. Mandated processes to just accommodate growth. That's what they did. But what they should be doing is saying, let's map out all of our processes for this multi-channel vision of the next five years, right? Of the next 10 years. Marketplaces aren't going anywhere. D2C is not going anywhere. B2B is not going anywhere, right? Like you can, some of these things, these are sure bets. You don't, it's not like these are like, I don't know. It's maybe not super risky, right? Yeah. Is Amazon going to be there in 10 years? I don't know. Yes, we know Amazon is going to be there. We know there are going to be many retailers buying products. We know D2C is going to be there. These are mostly sure bets. Stores are not going to, the retail apocalypse happened, but good store experience will exist, right? Newberry Street, I'm in, I can go down to Newberry Street real quick from my house. I'm in my house right now. It's a nice experience for retail. There are bad retail locations, right? and that, that's something they'll probably have to worry about, right? Making sure you might have to change your locations every once in a while, but I still believe there'll be good retail experiences forever, right? And considering that 70 to 80% of all retail spend is done in physical stores of some variety, yeah. 
The reality is that to, to say there's a retail apocalypse coming and, and even during COVID, when the TAM for online sales absolutely exploded the total addressable market, there was still 60 to 70% of all purchases being done in retail, especially for essential retail. And the reality is that we went back much more to the trend pre-COVID than keeping the, the mid-COVID trend of digital adoption and e-commerce adoption. We went back much more to the mean. Yes, we were already in, on an up and right, so an up and to the right trajectory of e-com pre-COVID. And we've gone back to that. If you continued that trend line from pre-COVID to today, we've m gone much more back to the mean uh, in terms of growth rates of e-commerce on an annualized basis. Very predictable, honestly. 10, 20% totally. of the country puts a somewhat rocky but steady lineup. Retail is going to stay flat, but it's a huge, big, so you can't ignore it, right? And so some of these things are not, it's not like this crazy groundbreaking philosophy that I came up with. It's really just having an intentional, ask the average company, and I think you sent me, I think maybe an architectural doc, document of some of the work you did, but ask the company, do you have an architectural document of, of your systems? Nine times out of 10, they, they do not. They have nothing visual to, to share with me. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. We're starting to put that more into the sales process to just, because we can do it pretty quickly. Here's what we think you have. Just our, this isn't even what you have. Cause like, yeah. how can, you know what I mean? Like, how can I help you if I don't even know what systems you have or how they all work together? And so there needs to be an intentional thought process around setting up all these systems to scale multi-channel. B2B is a critical piece of that because I would argue selling on a marketplace is a B2B sale. You're selling through Amazon, which is a business. Like you're selling to a business. Yes, the consumer's buying, it's B2B to B2C. In some cases you may need to just make wholesale orders, which is probably great to get some big wholesale orders, get some scale get a thousand units, whatever off to who, whoever may be, right? Need those mix. And so I guess the, so let me come back to the point that I was originally trying to make is that people start outward, oh, how do I market myself? And what they ended up doing is they end up actually lying to the customer because they're like, we are the best delivery and service. Well, no, you don't, because you don't even have intentional processes to cover all the, the markets. So if you're not intentionally fixing the inward, like you said, how can, you're almost like making these things outward statements because your internal processes are a mess, right? Oh, we're always on time. We're whatever. Because a lot of your outward marketing statements are a reflection of the quality of your inward product development, customer service and experiences that you get. And that's why someone like Amazon, just, they don't have to do much. They just say, we have two day Amazon Prime delivery. That's their marketing. Yeah. With that yeah. optional excellence that they've developed over decades beyond pretty much any other company in the world. And I think that's where companies are lacking is they, they don't, they, they look at these investments as like internal investments when actually it's probably going to have a bigger impact on your marketing because you can actually make marketing statements that are now true or valuable. You know what I mean? Because if, if you're all your systems and your processes and multi-channels all mass, what, what is your marketing going to say? Hey, we're disorganized. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to tell the truth. You're, 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 it's impossible for you to tell the truth because the, the truth is pretty ugly, right? Yeah. And so I, I would argue that every single thing that your business does is marketing. I would argue that e-commerce or commerce in general is logistic. It's basically logistics with the business front end put on it. It's, it's a business uh, where the sales channels are just the front piece or the logistics that goes on behind the scenes in that transaction. 
It's funny you say that because we're being, we're bringing potentially going to bring in a kind of like a, a fractional sales consultant to help us scale sales and marketing. And one of the things that we're realizing in just a few conversations talking to him is that some of our probably biggest sales and marketing opportunity is better explaining value of our internal operations. Because like we have all these internal things we built up over 12 years and it's really sophisticated. I don't think other competitors have some of the things that we have. They're not necessarily easy to explain. So we need to figure out how to, it's not like a widget I can just show you. It's, we're trying to figure out how to get better at explaining our processes and what the customer is actually going to get when they buy from us. And, and, and I, I mean, it's, it, I think anybody who's got expertise like you do struggles with the exact same thing. It's how do we demonstrate expertise in something that's not necessarily a physical product that you can pick up and hold in your hands? How do we demonstrate expertise in service delivery? How do we demonstrate expertise in internal knowledge? How do we communicate that in a succinct way that demonstrates why somebody should work with us, say, versus other yes, agencies? It goes on their website and, oh, we did this work. And first of all, half of it's a shara, uh, facade because Maybe they changed a button on the website, but they didn't actually build the whole website. And, or maybe they were like triple over budget. I just found from one of our, our customers that's paused because they have a lot of issues and we're, they're coming back or trying to help them fix a lot of things. They were with a competitor. The competitor took four to, I'm not going to name the competitor. The competitor took four and a half years to build the Shopify website. Four and a half years to build a Shopify website. And they're spending six years on a Magento site. Ungodly numbers, right? But those companies will be like, oh, yeah, we built that site, right? You don't know that it took them four and a half years in triple budget. And so, you know, you see what I'm saying? So, like, they're going around shopping and they have no idea who's going to be on budget on time. Obviously, there are reasons why things aren't always on time on budget. It's not as simple as I can't say that Charles is always perfectly on time on budget every time, 100% of the time, because some clients are just more difficult. There's out of scope work. We actually are very good about looking at what out of scope work did to the budget and to the timeline so that we can at least track that and the customer can see, hey, the, the in budget or in scope was on time or over time because of out of scope, right? At least they can see that. Or, or even admitted change requests by the client where they say, hey, where they say, hey, it's not like we are expecting you to do this work for free or that we expect this to not have a timeline impact. They go, no, actually mid build, we discovered either a new requirement or the market has changed or something that we want to now something that wasn't MVP is now MVP and we actually have to have it in the initial build that you guys are doing. And so therefore they acknowledge, hey, we know this is going to cost us a little bit more money. We know this is going to have a timeline impact, but it's a necessity that we have to launch with. And so therefore we're going to accept the penalty that goes along with that. Yeah. And, and, and let me just, I know we're getting towards the end here, but I think this is really important for the listeners and folks that want to hire someone like you or me or just anybody that think clients and companies don't understand that not some do understand but most don't understand because they haven't operated an agency or they haven't run the projects that like we've done hundreds and hundreds of projects so we've seen at scale going back to we we're joking i was just meeting my friend we did projects in 2012 together he used to work for me and then now he's off doing great things we we're joking about the things we used to do when we were young and stupid in 2012 and you learn you know the hard way anyways that I could get the exact same project requirements, exact same scope and deliver the exact same project. They could be, one could be double the cost, one could be half or whatever, because the client has that much of an impact on the project. I don't think companies understand how much of an impact they can have on the, 
And I'm saying forget even out of scope. Let's just do the same scope. There's no out of scope work. I could have two, identi two identical projects. They look exactly the same websites. But because of how efficient the client is with communication, Slack and Jira, how fast they are, just, just the Turn, turning around content, yeah, brand yeah. assets, everything else. Yeah, making decisions, giving us feedback. Hey, we're good with that. Do we do this? Giving us fine tuned feedback so we quickly make the iterations versus, oh, I'm not sure, or we can't get on the phone. Literally, I've seen projects come in that drastically different, like almost double because of the client, right? And I've seen clients that are really smart and good do a lot of work themselves and come in half because they're coming way under budget because they we tell them, hey, you can go do this. You can go log in the Shopify or BigCommerce and Magento. A lot of the work you just do and you don't have to be a developer and everything is development. So the point I guess I'm making is that companies have a lot more control, impact and influence on the outcomes of their projects than I think they have. Not saying that choosing the right vendor is obviously choosing the right partner and vendor is incredibly important, but I think a first step is just taking ownership of, hey, am I that client? Am I that double cost client? I think a lot of companies just don't realize that. How do I become and that I think, And what clients oftentimes don't realize also is that the better agencies and better consultants. So when I, for example, let's say I've got a BRD and let's say I'm going out to market with that BRD and helping a client do search and select for the next partner, their next agency partner, the good consultants and the good agencies, even if that client hasn't come via a consultant when they land at the agency's doorstep, we, we have what I affectionately like to call the bullshit factor in our industry. And everybody, know, when you say the bullshit factor, everybody knows what that means, or at least anybody who's been in the industry for 10 to 20 years, they know exactly what you mean when you say the bullshit factor. And it might be a bullshit factor of 10%. It might be a bullshit factor of 5%. It might be a bullshit factor of 25%. When we say bullshit factor, what we mean is the buffer that we put into our project proposals, timelines, costing, it's based on the difficulty of getting through, say, the discovery phase with the client or getting information out of the client initially when we first engage with them, whether it be in pre-sales or formal discovery or formal documentation phase, formal solution specification phase. The reality is we all do it and we have to do it because we have to take into account the bullshit factor because otherwise we will get burnt and, and we will overpromise and we will underdeliver in our projects if we don't take into account those additional complexities that the client oh, brings right. to the table. The communication, that kind of unknown intangible. I'll give you a very basic example. You, you ever work with those companies that can barely get on a Zoom call? They accept their calendar. Yep. That's the point of fact. You, you, the guy can't even get on the Zoom call, or can't get his mic to work. And you're like, how the hell are we going to do a thousand hour project with this guy? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's absolutely, and, and when you go through discovery, the less the business knows about their own business when they get into discovery, the no, the more time by definition you are going to have to spend with them to help them get educated about their own business before they can communicate accurately to you and before they can, because they try to jump oftentimes straight to the strategy piece or straight to the tactics piece. And they don't even know what their current state looks like. There's no one person in the business that understands all the inner workings of the business. And, and when it's you run you into that, that's a challenge. Um, it's funny you say that because we just did an analysis. I know we're at the end of the time, but I'll give you this last full exact data anecdote. We did analysis recently because we're trying to get better at discovery and strategy and that upfront process that's so important. And so we did an analysis of how long every discovery has taken us over the last two years. And when I say every, only larger projects. So we were looking at, 100K plus projects. Some of these are close to a million dollars. Some are maybe close to 100K. And the one or two that took the longest were not actually the biggest projects. They were just, 
exactly what you said. They just, there was, it was so hard to extract the information and get to a final decision on vendor selection and things like that, that they just took way longer than actually the largest project was half of one of the other projects in terms of discovery time. Wow. And so would your advice, let's leave a, let's leave this on a positive note with one, two, or three tips that we can give that are concrete for, let's say you're a B2B brand. Let's say you're doing $20 million a year. Let's say you've never done or more. And let's say you've never done e-commerce before. This is your first e-commerce implementation. And you want to prep yourself and your business to engage, whether it be with a consultant or an agency, it doesn't really matter. You're about to engage with professionals in the industry to help you get your first e-commerce implementation up and running. What are the steps, one or two or three steps that these brands can take before they ever start engaging professionals to work with? I would say get the leadership and executive team on the same page. I, I think this even comes to this. The CEO needs to get involved. Like I'm sick of these CEOs that have their head in the sand. If you, if that's your, go retire and pass the business on to your son. If you're not going to get in the weeds and figure this out, like either figure it out or get out of the way. And I'm just being an asshole here because I'm so sick of just these legacy executive leadership. That's just killing these companies, frankly, and they need to figure out how, if you're not executive, go figure out how to get the executives in a room, get them on the same page. What is this vision? What are we doing? How are we going to do it? Why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Where are we broken? Where are we not broken? What may be good? And sometimes a lot of times they have like maybe two really good systems, right? Maybe the ERP is fine. We just need to upgrade, right? Maybe we have NetSuite. That's great. Or maybe we have InForward. So talk one, we need to upgrade to the latest cloud version. We're not leaving, like what's staying, what's going, what's maybe a maybe. But these are like, the problem is you can't just have your director of marketing go figure that all out. Your director of IT can't go figure that all out. Or if they do, they're going to make major mistakes because they don't think about marketing or they don't think about IT or they don't think about sales. The only person that can really help all this stuff is the CEO. Because he's the only person that's in charge of all the division. Otherwise, they're just, you see what I'm saying? Well, you're going to be spinning your wheels and you're going to be one of those clients that spends six months in discovery. Yeah, exactly. And then they go to the CEO and he just says no. Because <laughs> he knows yeah. that. And they're like, actually, never mind. <laughs> uh, th th this is all too hard. This is all too difficult. And I, I think that once you get out of the discovery phase and you start getting into the vendor demo stage, that's usually the fun bit. That's the place where teams start to see what's possible. They start to see what is out there in the market. They see what's available today that wasn't available even five years ago. That's the sexy fun part. A lot of stuff is much more feasible in an MVP fashion in quick three, six month sprints or even a two month, one month, two month sprints. Maybe get some beta tests, maybe do a beta. We're seeing a lot more of, I want to launch beta dot what? But beta dot like beta website, maybe get your early adopter customers. And Proof of concept, think, that's it. It, it's smart to do if you do it. Could, couldn't agree more. And just before you go, I know you've got to shoot. What would be your question for me? Because I always like to turn it over at the end of our conversation. I always like to turn it over and let my guests ask me one question, any question they like, personal, professional, yeah, whatever. I, what would your I, question for me be? How do we accelerate this this industry so it, it still feels sometimes like we're in the, the dark ages here? <laughs> I, I, I think telling the truth in a honest transparent way about the challenges and the opportunities. I think showing our industry warts and all and being prepared to be honest around that, despite the blowback that might come to us and our businesses as a result. I think there's a lot of fronting in our industry. Not everybody is fronts, but I think there's a lot of rose tinted glasses conversations happening. And I think that brutal, empathetic honesty 
is really where we need to get to collectively as an industry and being willing to call a spade when it's a freaking spade. I think to me, that is the thing that everybody needs to get to instead of painting a picture that is totally unrealistic. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, how does everybody get a hold of you? Look, fantastic conversation, an hour's flown by. How do people find you? Is it, do you prefer LinkedIn? Do you prefer the Trellis website? How do you like people to find you? On social media, I've got exclusively LinkedIn. Isaiah Bollinger, it should be easy to find me with my name. If you just search or whatever, and I'll try to accept requests or whatever. Also, Isaiah Bollinger on Twitter. So I keep it very transparent. I'm not hiding behind any like fake names or anything like that. I'm not, I'm just, I, I don't have time for Instagram and TikTok and all that crap. It's just, it's too distracting. LinkedIn is business. Twitter is a mix of business and pleasure. And it's also can get toxic and addicting, but at least I limit myself to that. YouTube, I just use to try to get some, edu- I hope if you post this on YouTube, great. Try to get more educational videos out on, on YouTube. But then on the business side, trellis.co. So trellis, the word, a lot of people forget that it's a word, .co.co. We do not own the .com. I wish, I hope one day, trellis.co. And if you Google us, we're somewhere down the first page because friggin' Amazon and Wikipedia or Tribe. <laughs> Trellis, <laughs> yeah. Because Trellis is a great garden product. And unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of dominance there. Also agency and gardener at the same time. We'll mow your lawn and we'll... <laughs> build you a, it will build you a great B2B e-commerce website. Yeah. But yeah, just you go to Trellis.co and you hit contact us. I'll go to me and Jared. We don't have a huge sales team. You can. That's a lot of things people don't realize. You can talk to me and Jared if you're a lead for free. And we'll do a lot of people underestimate how much value they could get just by being like, hey, well, maybe we're not ready to buy for six months. Let's have a conversation earlier, sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. So that's another advice I would say. Start now. (laughs) Wow. Couldn't agree more. And I do the same. Look, I have lots of conversations with clients that that may or may not ever become a client. So I love that. I love just being able to share. I believe a rising tide floats all boats, and I know you do too. Isaiah. The more business you get, the happier I am. (laughs) Oh, hot grows the pie. And we're all going to get our, we're all going to get our piece if we're good with good intentions. So Isaiah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Fantastic chat. And I uh, can't wait to do it again soon, my friend. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.